0: listening to the Sports Daily. I'm your host, Reality Steve. Thank you all for tuning in. Good Wednesday show for you. We're going to go over the Philadelphia Eagles. Remember yesterday how I read you all their statistics of how bad their defense is? I've got even another one. Two more things to talk about and how bad they've been in important games against good teams. We're going to talk about the AFC because I'm scratching my head now trying to figure out who the hell's coming out of the AFC and going to represent them in the Super Bowl. Because your guess is as good as mine. The Monday night game the other night in Miami, Tennessee, winning that game down two touchdowns. I want to tell you how rare that win was. You're probably not going to believe it. i also going to talk about something I didn't bring up yesterday, what I watch for when I watch NFL games, and the Monday night game between... Tennessee and Miami was a perfect example of what I think about every single time I watch an NFL game that's remotely close. And then I want to talk a little college football about the transfer portal and some things that I just don't understand regarding it. And we'll get to all that momentarily. Okay, let's start off talking about the Philadelphia Eagles. Unfortunately, they are not very good on the defensive side of the ball. Mostly in their secondary. You can pass on them. They are one of the worst pass defenses in the league. They have the worst third down percentage, which I think is probably the biggest statistic. I just cannot imagine any scenario where the worst defense in the NFL on third down conversions, meaning they're allowing other teams to convert third down third down, at the highest percentage in the league. I just can't imagine a team like that winning the Super Bowl. If you're middle of the road, maybe. 32nd out of 32 teams, that means your defense is never getting off the field. And the last two games that the Philadelphia Eagles have played, where they've gone 0-2, blown out by both the Niners and the Cowboys, from the second the Niners scored their first touchdown in that game till halftime of the Cowboy game, There were 11 possessions that the Philadelphia Eagles defense played against the Niners and the Cowboys. 11 possessions from start of the second quarter of the San Francisco Eagles game in Philly till halftime of the Cowboys game in Dallas. 11 straight possessions. The Philadelphia Eagles gave up nine touchdowns, one field goal, and there was a kneel down. So 11 possessions, but one of them wasn't even a possession. It was we gotta kneel down. and this was against the two best other teams in the NFC, the two other teams you're tied with for best record in the NFC. Last time I checked, that's not very good. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing like look they're like I said, they are 10 and three. They are winning games, but they are this season's Minnesota Vikings. I told you yesterday. They're 10-3, and, and their point differential is 21, plus 21. The Dallas Cowboys are 10-3, and three and their point differential is like plus 163. Over time, that shit's going to even out. Yes, the Cowboys aren't going to blow everybody out. <laughs> Seemingly they do, but the Philadelphia Eagles can't just keep winning games by three, four, five points. There's just no way you're going to run through it. You can run through a regular season like that. Great. But you just can't constantly keep winning games like that. It's going to catch up with you at some point, especially when you don't have a good defense. Like if they just struggled offensively, but their defense was outstanding and kept them in every game, that would make more sense. But they're just eking out wins in the past, and now their defense is failing them because their defense is so bad in the secondary. Here's all you need to know about the Philadelphia Eagles season. This is a great statistic. Since the year 2000, there have been 106 teams in the NFL that had 10 or more wins through week 14. That includes the Eagles this year, 10 and 3 through 14 weeks. Of those 106 teams, Philly ranks 103rd in point differential at plus 21. I know one of the teams that ranked behind them last year's Vikings team because they had 10 or more wins through 14 weeks last year, and they had a negative point differential. Remember that? We kept going over that. I was like, this is unbelievable. This team is seven, eight games over five hundred, yet they're sitting here with a negative point differential. It made no sense, and we talked about it all season. It's like, great, you're 11-0 and in one-score games. It doesn't really matter. It got you to the dance. It got you to the playoffs. And then you get to the playoffs, and what happens? You play one one-score game, and you lose to the Giants on your home field. That's an amazing statistic, though. So Philly is right there with Minnesota from last year, like I've been saying. You just can't keep this up. Their defense either is either going to have to have a major turnaround in these last four games, or they're going to be a—I don't want to say they're going to be a first-round exit, because we don't know quite yet. But if somehow the Cowboys win the NFC East and the Philadelphia Eagles end up as the five seed and they have to go on the road to Tampa Bay or to New Orleans or to Atlanta, whatever garbage team wins the NFC South, I know the Cowboys are going to go on the road and take care of business against one of those three teams if they end up as the five seed. But if Philly does, there's always that one weird game in the first round where you're just like, whoa, didn't see that upset. That could be it. Because while Philly has a great record, they haven't played great. And they'll be the first to tell you that. Going back to Monday night, I went over yesterday basically how the end of the game played out once the Miami Dolphins went up 27-13 on Tennessee. I was like, look, four minutes and 34 seconds left. And the Tennessee Titans were down two touchdowns. And yet they won the game, 28-27. Well... Something happened in that game that hasn't happened in a bunch of games. So you probably didn't know this, but teams trailing by at least 14 points with less than three minutes left in regulation were 0-767 and 767 since 2016. Tennessee's win <laughs> made that 1-767. and 767. So while Tennessee took over with four and a half minutes left, they didn't get that first score until there was under three minutes left. Remember, we said they scored with, I believe, 246 left. Then they went for two. That took about five or six seconds off the clock. Two minutes and 40 seconds left, and they were down six because they went for two and got it down 27-21. But how about that? In the last seven years – 767 times a team had a two-touchdown lead with under three minutes to go, and they won every time until this past Monday night. Miami did it and got beat at home by a rookie quarterback whose team was 4-8. Once again, I can say this all i blue in the face, NFL is so ridiculous. You cannot predict shit. You just can't. You can't see that coming in a million years. But it happened. First time in 767 times in the last seven years. And that brings us to the AFC and what else is going on in the AFC. Any of you have any confidence in who's coming out of the AFC this year? You know, I want to say, you know, you look at it and you're like, well, the Ravens, they have the best record in the AFC. Do you honestly think anybody is scared of the Ravens? I believe Mark Lamar Jackson's won one playoff game in his whole career. They haven't won a playoff game, I believe, since 2016 or 2017. Or maybe it's they've won one since then. Not to mention, there's that one statistic that when they blew a two-touchdown lead to the Cleveland Browns about, Four or five weeks ago, it reared its ugly head where there isn't a home team that has blown more fourth quarter leads than the Baltimore Ravens in the last X amount of years. They lead the league in blown leads, including double-digit leads. They blew three different double-digit leads in that game to the Cleveland Browns, and that's why I got eliminated from the biggest survivor pool in all the United States. Don't think I'm not still bitter about that, because I am. So... Yeah, they might be the one seed. They might draw a bye, and all you have to do if you get the one seed is win two home games and you're in the Super Bowl. But I'm sorry. Miami could go into Baltimore and beat them. Kansas City could go into Baltimore and beat them. Jacksonville could go into Baltimore and beat them. Hell, Cleveland's already done it, and those are the top five seeds right now in the AFC. I don't think Pittsburgh can. I don't think Indianapolis can or any of these other teams, although I could see Cincinnati doing it because that's a division game. And Cincinnati, you realize Cincinnati is 0-4? in the division this year, yet they're 7-6 and six overall. So keep an eye out on them. I don't think they're finishing the season 0-6 in division. They have to win a division game at some point. But So, I mean, not that that eliminates Baltimore, and I don't think they can win, but then you look at Miami. After what happened Monday night, do you feel confident in them running the table and winning the Super Bowl or getting to the Super Bowl out of the AFC I mean, they've clearly showed that while they have a great offense, defense is shoddy, and they don't have a lot of experience when it comes to this. Usually a team kind of has to pay its dues in the playoffs and get beat a few times and then, like, earn their medal. Miami just is not there yet. I know they got beat last year, two it in play. They lost in Buffalo in round one. But I feel like they still need – to take some lumps. Jacksonville, you know, they got to the second round last year, did halfway decent, gave Kansas City a game. Could they? Yeah, but not without a healthy Trevor Lawrence. Cleveland, they've had four different quarterbacks win a game for them this year. Do we really think that Joe Flacco, who was named the starter through the end of the season, is going to win a Super Bowl with the Cleveland Browns? I don't see it. We know we can cross off Pittsburgh, whether they make the playoffs or not. Pittsburgh's not good enough to win a Super Bowl or get to the Super Bowl out of the AFC. Indianapolis, is Gardner Minshew going to go to the Super Bowl? Probably not. Houston, we don't even know the status of C.J. Stroud after his concussion last week. Denver, you know, playing better. Are they a Super Bowl team? Cincinnati, with Jake Browning, they're playing good. 2-0 and with him. Are they good enough to get there? I don't know. But honestly, the 10 and 11 seeds right now, Cincinnati and Buffalo, those are the two teams that, while the if the playoffs started today, they wouldn't be in it. But if those two teams somehow sneak into the playoffs, I mean, what if Buffalo gets in as a 7 seed and they play at Miami in the first week into the playoffs, a 2-7 matchup? Would any of you be surprised if Buffalo went into Miami and won? I mean, it's a divisional game. They play each other twice a year. I certainly wouldn't be. So, honestly, I'm thinking the 10 or 11 seeds in the AFC are probably your best bets. I mean, you'll definitely get some value for them. They're not going to be treated as normal 6 and 7 seeds because Buffalo's got Josh Allen. Cincinnati's been to a Super Bowl in the last two years. But all I'm saying is Baltimore and Miami don't scare me. I don't think they scare anybody else in the AFC. And the one team I haven't brought up is the three seed right now, the Chiefs, who we know aren't nearly as good as they've been for the last five years that they've hosted the AFC championship. This is really going to be interesting in seeing how it plays out over the last four weeks. Because even if someone runs the table and goes 4-0 and looks really good, I just laid out all their warts for you. They've all got warts, big ones. Way bigger warts than what you see out of the top teams in the NFC, which are San Francisco and Dallas. Philly's got some major warts, but San Francisco and Dallas look to be the cream of the crop in the NFC. And I just laid out the top 11 seeds in the AFC. I mean, you could almost slip a coin. I mean, we got to see once after four next four weeks are up, all right, who finally made it in. And then kind of go from there. But, man, if I'm those top teams, I do not want to see Buffalo or Cincinnati making it in as the 6th and 7th seed. It's going to be tough for them because right now they're seated 10th and 11th. But I'm pretty sure if Cincinnati and Buffalo run the table and go 4-0 to end the season, I would think they're both in. Mentioned this yesterday in the open, but never got around to talking about it. However, it pertains to Monday night's game with Tennessee and Miami. And that is, when I watch NFL games, or when I watch any football game, college or pro, especially when we get to the end of a half, whether it's second quarter or fourth quarter, when we get to the end and and it's a relatively close game, well, in the first half it doesn't matter, but more so, when we get to an end of a game, five or six minutes left, every single time I'm watching a game, if it's remotely close, all I start doing is the math. All I start saying is, okay... How many timeouts does the losing team have? Where are we at on time? How many scores are they behind? And anytime I'm watching a game with someone, I let them know, hey, look, they might not even care sometimes, but I always point it out. And the amazing thing is to me, I'm doing this at home from my couch, and I don't think a lot of coaches do this because every single time I do this, well, not every single time. But most of the time I do this, I don't see the coaches lining up with what you're really supposed to do in that situation. So many times I sit there and I'm like, why isn't they taking a timeout? Why aren't they stopping the clock? I mean, there's so many different scenarios that have to point the game out to you. But with the Tennessee-Miami game on Monday night, everything played out exactly like the only way for Tennessee to win was for them to do exactly what they did. And they did it right. And I was surprised because most teams screw it up. They scored with 240 left, went for two. Now, that's a coach's decision. You don't have to go for two in that situation. They could have kicked the extra point and been down 27-20. The whole point was they had the ball, four and a a half minutes left in the game. They had um, two timeouts left in the two-minute warning, and they needed two scores. So ideally, you want to score before the two-minute warning, without using a timeout, cut it to seven, or in their case, they decided we'll go for we'll go for two here to know what we need, either to tie or to win. And they got it, so they were only down six, and they got it before the two-minute warning. So now they kicked off, Miami got the ball back with 240, and Tennessee had two timeouts in the two-minute warning. So the only way they have a chance of winning this game is prevent Miami from getting a first down, get the ball back that's exactly what they did. Miami ran it on first down, timeout. Ran it on second down, timeout. Third down, holding penalty. So they still had the two-minute warning. By the time they got the ball back, which Miami only ran 16 seconds off the clock. By the time Tennessee got the ball back, they still had over two minutes left. So they had the two-minute warning, and they needed a touchdown to, and an extra point to win because they had cut it to six with the two-point conversion on the score before. But that's the type of thing that I always look at. Not that I want to be a coach. I just think that I'm trying to think along with the game and just be like, hey, this is the way it goes. And and maybe a lot of this has to do with the fact that I bet on games. So And I didn't bet on that game, so I didn't really care who won. But because I do bet on games... I look at the games and I'm always seeing, especially if it's close and I have the team that's up versus or if I have the team that's trailing what they need to do to win. And for the team that's up, I'm like, okay. if I was if I had Miami on Monday night, I'd be like, you get one first down and the game is essentially over. Now, it all depended on what down they would have gotten a first down on, because if they would have got a first down on the first play when they took over with two minutes and 40 seconds left, then Tennessee would have called a timeout with 2.35 left, and then it's 1st and 10 for Miami. Running play, probably. Stop them, call a timeout, 2.35 left. Then 2nd down, they don't have any timeouts left after that, so they get it, run it down to the 2-minute warning. And then 3rd down happens, 5 seconds for the play, 42nd clock. So in my head, I was like, okay, if Miami gets a 1st down on the 1st play from scrimmage here, the best Tennessee can do – is get the ball back with no timeouts, get it back with about 105, 110 left, and they need a touchdown and no timeouts. But that's not what happened because Miami went three and out. So it's just it's just a way to look at things and you look to see if if things work out in your favor. But just something I wanted to share. I do it every single time I'm watching a game that's close and it's a one-to-two score game with five or six minutes left. And I did it Monday night with that, with that game. And the only way for Tennessee to win was for it to play out exactly like it did. They used their timeouts perfectly. They stopped them when they needed to. And I was like, well, at least they gave themselves a chance. I didn't think that they were going to drive two different times in four and a half minutes. Like I said, it's not like they got a short field. It's not like a turnover set them up. They went, I think, 75 yards in both drives. Two 75-yard drives in under four and a half minutes. Because even when they did score the second time, there was still a minute 48 left on the clock. So it really only took them two minutes and 45 seconds to do two 75-yard drives? Like That's how bad of a loss it was for the Dolphins. They must be devastated of how poorly they played in those last four and a half minutes. They were terrible. Now, one excuse, quote-unquote, you can give Miami is this. They were missing three offensive linemen and then they lost their center in the first quarter. So this was not the Miami team you were used to. Tyreek Hill also went out for two quarters. I mean, this was a team that was pretty beat up. So I can't say that, well, that it's gonna to happen to Miami in the playoffs. If Miami is healthy, fully healthy in the playoffs, they're gonna be a tough out. But goes to show. I mean, they it didn't seem like they had it in them to close out Tennessee. And that's disturbing heading towards playoff time. And finally, last thing I wanted to talk about, we know about the transfer portal in college football and how crazy it's become. And basically it's just free agency at the end of every year. Did you see what Deion Sanders did? In a span of three days, he brought in five new offensive linemen. Five. And we know that was Colorado's biggest problem this year was they just had no offensive linemen. It was craziness. like They they had nobody. Shadur Sanders was getting killed on every play. The amount of sacks Colorado gave up was the most, I think, in the nation. Then in the last three days, Colorado has landed five top offensive linemen. Jordan Seaton is apparently the number one left tackle in the nation. Tyler Johnson transferred in. He was a Big 12 starting right guard at Houston. Yakiri Walker is the starting center at UConn. He transferred. To Colorado Khalil Benson starting right tackle at Indiana he transferred to Colorado and Justin Mayers an all Conference USA starting left guard at UTEP now as much as I love college football I don't have a fucking clue how good these guys are this came from a college site or a Twitter account that's a pro Colorado Buffalo Twitter account so while they say they've landed five top offensive linemen they landed five offensive linemen the bottom line is though They can't possibly be any worse than what Colorado threw out there this past season because that offensive line was god-awful. You got the number one left tackle in the nation that signed with them, and then they got four transfers. You know, I don't know how good you are, offensive linemen, when you come from Houston, UConn, Indiana, and UTEP. It's not like they got transfers from Georgia, Alabama, and Tennessee, you know. Great. They got the all big 12 starting right guard from Houston. I have no idea how good he is. Maybe he's great. Same with the starting center from UConn and the right tackle from Indiana and the left guard from UTEP. But my issue with the transfer portal is this. I love how all these guys announce on their social media. They seem to all be writing a letter to the fans and all they do is tell everybody how great their time was at this school And all the memories I cherish, I love my coaches, I love my teammates. But I've decided to put my name into the portal. It's like, wait, why? Especially guys that had good seasons. Like, I have no idea. There must be something else going on at Ohio State, and maybe, what's his face, Uh, the quarterback that's transferring, Kyle McCord, maybe heard rumblings that he wasn't going to be the starter next year or he was going to have to compete because – I don't know how you go 11-1 and one in Ohio State and throw for 3,000 yards and put your name in the portal. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me unless there's something I don't know about, which is very, very possible. But I just love these curated social media posts that all they do is glorify the school and how much they love it, and they'll be a Boston College Eagle through and through. But I've decided to enter the transfer portal. <laughs> it's like well, Clearly, you don't like the school that much or else you would have stayed. So, yeah, uh, that's that's something that's really starting to drive me nuts. But we've got a lot of good quarterbacks in the portal. Dylan Gabriel, who seems like he's been in college for about 19 years at this point. UCF, Oklahoma, now he's going to Oregon. It's looking like Will Rogers and the running back from Mississippi State are going to end up, oh, crap, where did I read they were going to go? I'm totally blanking. But we know Dylan Gabriel is going to Oregon. There have been a couple other that have signed, but it's just a free for all now. Like you can really say at the end of every season, and look, there's gonna be teams that get a ton of transfers and do well, and a team that gets a ton of transfers and does okay, you know, five and seven, six and six, seven and six, and there'll be a ton of the team that gets a ton of transfers and doesn't do anything. Two, three, four wins. So there's no guarantee, but just like in the NFL, you need a stud quarterback to win in college football. Dylan Gabriel is literally going to set records for how many times he started in college football, the yards that he's passed for. I think he has a chance to break the all-time yardage mark because he's played so many years. Like It seems like he's played for five or six or seven or eight or nine years. But, yeah, he's going to Oregon. There's a couple other that have definitely signed, and I'm blanking on right now. Kyle McCord hasn't signed yet, but I think he's visiting Nebraska. DJ Uyunglele is transferring again. You know, started out at Clemson then went to Oregon State this past year, but since they don't have a conference, he's going to ditch them. Looks like he's probably going to end up at Florida State. So that's going to be a big quarterback change. And there's just a lot going on. Oh, the kid from um, – Miami, Alex Van Dyke. He's going to Wisconsin, right? I think I saw that. But yeah, they just all leave a note for everybody and just glorify the school that they're leaving. Before at the very last sentence, it's like, "And I've decided to enter the transfer portal." Just, just kind of humorous to me. Anyway, thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. Please follow me on Apple Podcasts. Also, rate and review. Tell your friends about this podcast. Let them come on board. Got some exciting things possibly coming up uh, for this podcast. So just wanted to throw that out there. Anyway, thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. And remember, sports will always be the greatest reality show on television. See